Look, Doctor, I know science comes first. But that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight. Every hour on the hour. Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Ann Colby, who will join us to discuss the development of our moral understanding. Also, we'll find out how our moon gets a ring. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. Dr. Lee, I presume? Yes, or, I guess so. How are you, Dr. Ling? Uh, not too bad. Can't do surgery yet, but <laughs> one of these days. But, you know, at least now you can play doctor with people. Yes, we're Jedis. Because I want to uh, teleport stuff. Yeah. <laughs> For the folks in the audience that uh, have been following our misadventures, we are now uh, holders of the Doctorate of Evil, I think. <laughs> Only monster of evil doth. But I guess science still goes on, right? It still it keeps going on, and uh, little commencement weekends don't change that. Yeah, it was a good weekend. Indeed. But for those people out there, what do you about hormone therapy? I've missed a couple treatments. <laughs> oh, man. I, mean, I, I thought you were getting a little bit too large for yourself there. but <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to know where I'm getting large, though, Frank. But it's, this is actually for uh, the elderly ladies out there who may be having hormone treatment in the past for reducing osteoporosis or even reversing the effects of osteoporosis. I see. Basically, it could prevent calcium from leaking out of your bones, and hopefully you'll have stronger bones, uh, reduce the risk of fractures. But a recent study that came out in the Journal of American Medical Association says that it seems to actually cause the increase of breast cancer, stroke, heart disease, and does not improve mental functioning. <laughs> Really? No. So it's actually worse than uh, not doing anything at all, in fact. So I think the conventional wisdom is now you shouldn't use it unless it's absolutely necessary. And the drug formulation they have is actually a mixture of estrogen and progestin. So we know that you know as you get older, you're going to lose your production of hormones. You know, that's natural. And so this is actually a hormone replacement therapy. But they're not wondering if this combination with progesterone is actually good or not. The advice, though, is still to be on the uh, hormone replacement until... Right. If you absolutely need it, then use it, because otherwise those hot flashes could be pretty... Uh, I get hot flashes painful. all the time, Frank. It um, has nothing to do with hormones. Well, maybe it does. <laughs> so I guess if anyone wants to read more about this, they can go to the recent issue of the American Medical Association, and it was a study carried out by the Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center.
Okay, well, so uh, do you have problems with gas? Gas? Or do you uh, have problems with holding your gas? Holding my gas? Well, I do have some stomach problems, but I don't know if this is related or not. Because I, I think the gas comes the other way. Not, actually, I'm not sure which direction you're talking about. <laughs> well, I, I'm burning the candle from both ends as well. <laughs> but, uh, no, it, well, so it turns out that actually solar systems ha- don't have a problem holding their gas. Solar systems? Solar systems. You mean all that hydrogen and uh, helium? Uh, hydrogen, helium, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, methane. <laughs> Cows do it. So it turns out that the formation of solar systems require dust and a lot of gases to be around for a long enough time for them to start accreting and coming together and forming planets. Mm -hmm. But new evidence now is showing that dust is not sticking around as long as most people have thought. People have thought for a long time that dust stuck around for several million years, but it looks like dust dissipates within a time of only five to three million years. Wow, so there's some sort of diffusional uh, activity going on, huh? Right, right. So the dust is just somehow dissipating very quickly, a lot quicker than people thought. Uh-huh. And so people think that this suggests that solar systems must form very quickly. Before it dissipates. Before it dissipates, because previous theories had said, oh, you have about 10 million years to assemble planets. Now you have less time because the dust isn't around as much. But uh, luckily, gas sticks around for a very long time. Doesn't sound very intuitive because you no. think the gases diffuse a lot faster than right. this dust, right? Which, which is quite odd, but uh, apparently it's sticking around a lot longer, and it, is, in fact, is responsible for a lot of the mass. Like uh, Jupiter, perhaps. Ju- that's exactly. They're suggesting that gas giants may form largely because of the extra gas. Cool. So it's it's an interesting study for uh, those people interested in the birth of planets. New planets, new solar systems. New solar systems, and anything having to do with gas. So <laughs> this is a study that was carried out uh, by Richard Elston of the University of Florida in Gainesville, and this was reported in the recent edition of Science. Alright, so here are some new, more news from planetary sciences, but no gas this time. So uh, some scientists led by uh, Tai Fan here at UC Berkeley have solved a mystery regarding dayside proton aurora spots. I, I didn't even know such a mystery existed. Uh, me neither. I just <laughs> found out too. But they've solved the mystery. Right. Brilliant. Uh, and the mystery is how are they formed. So uh, these are a little bit different from the other auroras that we see, the aurora borealis. Uh-huh. And how, how are they different? So the uh, conventional auroras that we see are caused by electrons from the solar wind hitting our magnetic field, and that causes some excitation going on. But now what they found is there's also bright spots in the Earth's atmosphere, and they're actually caused by the protons of the solar wind. Oh, so instead of the electrons, it's the protons. Right, so the protons steal electrons from the atmosphere, and that causes excitation of some sort. Leads to light. Kind right, of. but it only occurs when there's fractures in the uh, Earth's magnetic field. So usually the magnetic field is pretty strong, it's pretty impenetrable, but once in a while, you have fractures, and before the fractures heal, it's possible for these protons to seep into our atmosphere and interact with the molecules up there. I see, so basically you're seeing the aurora right at the fracture. Right. So, uh, yeah, they use some observations from uh, satellite images from the European Space Agency, and that's their conclusion right now. Neat. And if people want to find out about that, they can go to the May 21st issue of the Geophysical Research Letters. Okay, and finally, do you like your mom? I love her. That's good. Don't we all? 
We should all love our moms because it turns out moms change the future. Well, they can change at least the future of the children that they're raising. Which well, I mean, she did give birth to me, so <laughs> that does make a difference. Which, which is lucky for all of us, really. Wow. Okay. Thanks, mom. I guess this should have actually aired on Mother's Day, but <laughs> all right. So it turns out that a group of researchers have been studying a certain type of gene called the serotonin transporter gene, and this is a gene that's associated with overly anxious behavior and heightened inability to pay attention. So isn't serotonin the uh, molecule that sort of calms people down? That is one of the things, right? It's a neurotransmitter, right? Right, indeed. So if you don't have as much of the serotonin transporter gene, perhaps you're not as calm. Or so people who have a defective gene, or monkeys at least that have a defective gene, are usually a little more anxious. But it turns out that if they're raised by their natural mother who's mm-hmm. very caring of their environment, then they turn out not to be as anxious as monkeys who have the same gene, but are raised by sort of foster care nursery environment, which suggests that there's a big role like, for the environment in terms of the, right. the, the expression of this type. Of so this leads back to the discussion of nature versus nurture, right. right? It's a little of both. Yeah, of course. So, But this is certainly interesting, so uh, thank your mom. And this was reported in the recent edition of Molecular Psychiatry. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Dr. Ann Colby will join us to discuss the development of our moral understanding. So stay tuned. Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, our sense of religious, spiritual, and moral awareness seems so much a part of our daily lives that we may not stop to think about how we come by these beliefs. Indeed, different theories promote separate roles that either genetics or society might play in shaping these uniquely human traits. Well, joining us today to discuss some of these issues surrounding the development of our moral understanding is Dr. Ann Colby. Dr. Colby is a senior scholar at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. She is a participant of the Being Human Project and recently presented her work entitled The Development of Moral Understanding, Emotion, and Identity Through Life. Dr. Colby, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. My pleasure. Well, so you're, you're a participant in this interesting seminar series called Becoming Human, Evolutionary Origins of Religious, Spiritual, and Moral Awareness. I'm curious if you can explain a little bit about what the broad goals of this project is. A very general topic is about the relationship between science and human morality, freedom, and spirituality. A lot of people believe that science reduces everything to mechanistic processes and doesn't leave room for human freedom and issues like morality, but that turns out not to be true if you really understand the science behind it. And so the project and the conference really was trying to get that message out. I see. And what sort of directions and tacks are people taking in trying to address this issue? Well, there's a lot of work in evolutionary biology, some of which tries to make the claim that 
our genetic material are the true masters of reality, and human beings are just kind of accomplices of the genes, and that the purpose of all of human life is really just to maximize your representation in the gene pool. But if you really understand evolutionary biology, that turns out not to be true, and there's a lot in the way that humans have evolved that supports the understanding of interpersonal concern, human beings as social, morality as being real, and those kinds of things that are part of what it means biologically and evolutionarily for people to be human. So are, are they saying that there's perhaps a uh, genetic advantage to having a sense of moral uh, awareness? In a sense, yes. They're saying that human beings are fundamentally social in their biology. So, for example, in childbirth from very early on uh, in tracking human life, it seems that humans and some of the higher apes really look for support and help in childbirth, whereas other animals are likely to go off into the forest and be alone. So that's just one example, but there are many aspects of human life where the biological propensity is for social support and connection and helping each other, and altruism is really another thing, and empathy is really built into the human being. And of course, it it seems kind of obvious that is of evolutionary advantage because if you are empathic toward people near you, you're likely to be empathic toward people in your gene pool and support their survival. But it it doesn't stop at that because the way human beings are wired, they're really set up for things like imagination and reflection as well. So they're able to move beyond these basic biological processes. Well, the uh, second year of this conference uh, was uh-huh. entitled Biology to Biography, uh, the Science of the Human Person, and uh, you're, you delivered a lecture entitled The Development of Moral Understanding, Emotion, and Identity Through Life. Sure. Yeah, I've, I've uh, spent a lot of my career studying moral development across the lifespan, and one of the things I talked about was just the whole issue of empathy and how it develops. Biologically, people are set up to be empathic toward each other, And I mentioned that from an evolutionary point of view, this may have arisen because it helps to keep your children and other relatives alive and so on for the gene pool. But in fact, the thing that's interesting about human beings is that they move beyond this. So there's a bias in empathic response, which has been shown in a lot of research such that people are capable of being having empathic reactions to pretty much anyone. But their bias toward being sympathetic toward or helpful toward people who are like themselves in their own family and also people that are present in the here and now. But the interesting thing is that they can then use their cognitive capacities and their imaginative capacities to move beyond these biases. So, for example, they might notice that they're not being compassionate toward strangers and People want to think of themselves as compassionate people. So they then say, well, how, if they're thinking about, for example, children, innocent children that are being killed across the world in a war and so on, and they're not feeling like they're empathic enough toward those people, they would, they could even imaginatively say to themselves, what if that was my child? How would I feel? And so through that process of kind of taking the position in their mind, 
they can move beyond these kind of built-in biases. So we have sort of an innate disposition to being somewhat empathic, but we can extend that across people who we might not otherwise naturally feel empathic towards. Exactly. So people draw the boundaries of compassion in very different ways. And part of what we mean by someone being a compassionate person is they draw much wider boundaries toward people that they don't necessarily know well or aren't in their family. So, for example, Gentiles who saved Jews at great risk to themselves during World War II were people who didn't see the Jews in their community as fundamentally different from themselves, even if they didn't know them. So they have ways of drawing those boundaries much more broadly than other people might. I see. And I, I guess the big question is, well, how do, uh, why do some people then draw boundaries in wider circles rather than narrow circles? What's, I guess, the difference between compassionate people and those who aren't? Well, there are many, many different processes that go on. It starts in childhood, and parents who, when they discipline their children, point out to the children the consequences of their actions for the other child and help the child look at it from another person's point of view, tend to have more pro-social and empathic children. When you look at criminals or juvenile delinquents, frequently their parents have been violent toward them in their discipline and cause a very high level of arousal, fear, and anger in the child. So the child doesn't really get a message that his behavior is doing something harmful to another person and he needs to look at it from that other person's point of view. He just gets the message that he's being attacked and he needs to protect himself and fight back. So kids like that often grow up to be really dysfunctional in their empathic responses. So, for example, a um, delinquent uh, person, who a teenager who had attacked a blind woman, instead of looking at it from that woman's point of view, he said, oh, she's a great target because she can't even identify me. And then the interviewer asks, well, asks him, what about the fact that you're causing all this pain and fear to this woman who's already got a lot of problems? And he says, well, why should I care? She's not me. So he doesn't look at it from her point of view, and he doesn't even feel that normal response that people would feel. On the other end of the continuum, I did a study with my husband that's reported in a book called Some Do Care, where these are people that are really at the extreme of spending decades of their lives helping other people. So I talked at the conference about a woman named Charlesetta Waddles, who ran a social service agency in the Detroit area for many, many years before she died. And for her, she started off a sympathetic, generous, empathic person, but it didn't stop there in her personal life. It was really extended to supporting her whole community. And part of the way that that happened in her case was her natural empathic reactions were grounded in a religious perspective, and she was a very serious Christian. So this was a way of kind of channeling and grounding and stabilizing her natural empathic reactions and extending them to a much wider range of people. And it also gave her a way to deal with emotions that might have gotten in the way of this work otherwise. So, for example, when you're helping people, they often don't respond Positively, they could turn around and be ungrateful or cheat you or not respond well to your help. And so she found that she needed to forgive these people over and over. And so she talks about the biblical teachings on the importance of, of forgiving people over and over and over again in the New Testament and the Bible. So that's one of the things that can really ground uh, this 
kind of stability in compassion and generosity over time. Hmm. It sounds like, I guess, you're arguing for a very big role then for environmental factors and societal factors in shaping the development of our moral awareness. I'm, I'm curious, how much do you think people have in different innate proclivities to being more moral or religious? As I said, I think one of the main messages of the conference is that everyone has the innate, with very few exceptions, everyone has the innate capacity for empathic reactions and for morality and for the capacity to reflect on, on moral issues. But it really needs to be developed and channeled over time and in their lives. And that, that is something that happens out of their experience, particularly their social experience. And so I think that that's crucial for its full development. Whether there are also biologically based individual differences, I think they are present. There, there's some evidence that some people tend to be more empathic than, the, than others, but it's, it's not a very simple matter because, in fact, among young children, some of the ones who have the strongest empathic reactions are less likely to help other children hmm. because they become overwhelmed with their empathic reaction and they don't control their emotions very well, so they might try to escape the situation and be able to help effectively. It's kind of complicated. Uh, in the case of the, the delinquents that I mentioned, it looks like some young, usually boys, although not always, have a difficult temperament. And so the parents might react negatively and then it kind of cycles on itself. So they have both a difficult temperament and a tendency toward uh, parents who have a tendency toward violent reactions and so on. So those interact to play out in the kind of case that I told you. So both things are going on at the same time. But I think the, even those cases, if they have the right kinds of experiences later, can be turned around. And another one of my big messages is that uh, many people believe that moral character is established early in childhood and then beyond that it can't change. And that's really not true. It can change all throughout life, uh, both your moral emotions and motivation and also your moral thinking, which is extremely important, too. And, in fact, one of the things that I've been working on lately is work on what higher education can do for college students, even by that age, to build this kind of experience into different aspects of higher education to support the full development of moral responsibility in young people as undergraduates. And I mentioned the book that just came out on that, which is called Educating Citizens, and that's about undergraduate students and how you can, through the curriculum and extracurriculum and the campus atmosphere, support the full development of both moral and civic responsibility in college students. So what would you say would be a good way for people then actually to develop their moral sense? And Well, I think there are many, many factors involved, starting with the home environment and the kind of parenting that people get. But I think beyond that, there's a lot that individuals are active participants in their own development. So the kinds of experiences that they themselves seek out and the kinds of people and relationships that they seek out really can have a huge impact as well. So a willingness to look at yourself and try to put yourself in experiences that are going to really develop your moral thinking and your moral feelings can, can make a huge difference. Like I say, that can happen in formal education programs. It can happen within religious communities and 12-step groups and all kinds of different programs where people are really looking at themselves and working with other people toward their own moral growth. Um, well, it looks like we're running a little bit out of time, but just to wrap things up, I'm just curious, how did, how did you become interested in this whole area? Of 
Well, I've been involved with this for a very long time since graduate school, and I was in graduate school during the Vietnam War, and I really felt at that time that the world was a crazy place, and unfortunately it's still pretty much <laughs> a crazy yeah. place. <laughs> but I said, well, I want to devote my career to trying to think about how to make people better and more thoughtful about moral issues. Well, I, I certainly think you're doing a great job. Dr. Colby, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grogs. Thank you. You were just listening to Dr. Ann Colby of the Carnegie Institute for the Advancement of Teaching, discussing the development of our moral understanding. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, you can find out what causes rings around the moon. So stay tuned. Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered what causes those rings around the moon? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. You've got just 17 hours to get that ship ready, and then we take off for the moon. Ever wonder why the moon sometimes appears to have a ring around it? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Winter nights are usually the best time for seeing those eerie-looking rings around the moon. Often described in old wives' tales as harbingers of bad weather, these rings are the result of a type of cloud in the upper atmosphere called cirrostratus clouds. Want to visit one? Let's go. Cirrostratus clouds are way up there, between 20,000 and 43,000 feet up. But of course, the moon is higher. In fact, the clouds don't really circle the moon. They're just so thin and transparent that the moonlight can shine through, creating the halo effect. And from up here, in the upper atmosphere, we can actually feel what these clouds are made of. Ice crystals. And they're not just any old shape. They're pencil-shaped with eight sides. They're also so small that it would take ten million or more to make up a single raindrop. Now let's look more closely at how moonlight plays into all of this. Light rays from the moon enter each ice crystal, bend, and then bend again as they exit the crystal. This bending and redirection of these light rays as they pass through the crystals is called refraction. The sheer number of crystals refracting moonbeams is what makes it possible for the halo to be seen by sky watchers down on Earth. Well, time to beam out. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. 
Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. One ring to rule them all. She's the ring around every halo I see around the moon. And one day she'll bind you, too. <laughs> we can only hope, once again, the devotion to the Everyday Science Lady. We, we thank you. Hey, and now it's time for the answer to our sweet question of the week. Hey, you see all these colors around you? Let me buy a little paint, but how do you paint as color? Hey, you never really know, but paint pigments that are inside that absorb light at certain frequencies and others, and that is the reason why paint has its color. Okay, and now here is Tokyo Kid with this week's question of the week. It's not a bacteria, it's not a virus, but it causes some strange mad cow disease. It's called a prion. If you know what it is or think you know what it is, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just avoid going mad. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Groks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Groks, email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Groks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. Mr. Pixel.